Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. I'm Kurt Repencheck, the editor of National Parks Traveler, and 2022 has been a year of firsts for me in terms of first-time visits to units of the national park system. While I visited longtime favorites Grand Teton in June and Yellowstone in September, I also have been on road trips through Nebraska, Kansas, and New Mexico to explore overlooked gems of the park system, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. To help me sort through some of the gems you should definitely include on your list of parks to visit and explore, I'm joined by Rebecca Latson, our contributing photographer, and Kim O'Connell, one of our contributing editors. Welcome back to The Traveler, ladies. Hi, Kurt. Hi, Kurt. Hi Kim. Hi, Becky. How are you? Oh, fine. How about yourself? Doing well, thanks. You know, I have to say, there are literally hundreds of overlooked units of the National Park System. It seems when you see other media organizations' stories about national parks in your news feed, they're writing about Yellowstone, Yosemite, Acadia, Grand Canyon, Rocky Mountain, the name brand units. You know, and we've, we've mentioned before that uh, in 2021, roughly half of the 300 million visits to the national park system went to just 25 units of the 423 that are out there. You don't often see stories about the Fort Larned's, Scott's Bluffs, John Day Fossil Beds, or Marsh Billings Rockefellers of the system. Why, why do you think that is? Kim, any thoughts? I think one of the main culprits is nomenclature. The fact that there are units of the national park system called national parks gives a lot of lay people the impression that those are the only parks in our national park system, the ones with the designation national park. And in fact, before we were going to get on this um, talk together, I was looking at some Christmas gifts. There's always like fun national park related Christmas gifts and friends know I'm a big fan of the park. So they're always sending me stuff, right? Like national parks, traveler swag, but often if there's like a poster or a game or, you know, a puzzle or something that relates to the national parks, they're always only going to show those, what, 63 or some national parks. So in the sort of regular national consciousness, those are the parks of the park system to most people. Those are the ones you hear about. So part of it is just that the way that this park system was set up, you have a few that are called national parks. And then and a lot of people don't realize that there are national monuments and national lakeshores and national historic sites and so many units that are part of this park system and often very worthy of the bigger parks in terms of like the history and culture and natural beauty that are there. So that's that's my thought on the matter. You know, and I think you're absolutely right because early this year, New River Gorge National River turned into New River Gorge National Park and Preserve. And boom, all of a sudden, all the media were talking about this new national park in the national park system. And I just had to shake my head and say, it's been there since I think 1978. <laughs> um, yeah. I went and, rafting there in 1993. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a raft guide there in, in college before it was even added to the national park system. Uh, Becky, what are your thoughts? I know, you know, you're based in, in Washington state and, and you've been on the road to quite a few undiscovered gems in the national park system. Any, any thoughts on, on why um, these places aren't getting noticed? I, I would have to agree with Kim on why they're not getting noticed. I mean, I when I purchased my new vehicle in 2020, I bought it with the intention of making road trips, not flying anymore. I was done with that. And it was during the pandemic anyway. So I was going to go to these big name parks because that's what first came to my mind 
were national parks as opposed to anything else. And then you emailed me and you said, well, you know, I've never been to John Day Fossil Beds National Monument or uh, Lake Roosevelt National Recreation Area or any of those places. And I thought, huh, I haven't either. I've never even heard of so uh, then I got on to Flickr and started looking at photos of these places because that's my go-to Flickr. I want to see what I might see if I went there looking at other people's pictures of these places. But uh, yeah, I totally agree with Kim. I, I think it's the nomenclature. People think of national parks as the park. They don't realize that every unit within the national park system is essentially considered a park. It just may not be a national park. Yeah, yeah. And if you go back to, uh, I think it was the 1978 Redwoods Act, where Congress reaffirmed that every unit of the national park system was to be managed as a national park, whether it had that designation or not, unless otherwise specified in its enabling legislation. Now, you know, I'm wondering if one of the reasons that some of these places don't get the love is not only because of nomenclature and not only because uh, other media organizations don't write stories about them like the traveler does, but because as, as the, the superintendent of Scott's Bluff National Monument told me this summer when I visited there, Scott's Bluff might not be your final destination, but it certainly can be a, a destination on a road trip. And, and, you know, for sure, I mean, if you go to a Yellowstone or a Acadia or a Great Smoky Mountains, odds are you're going to spend two or three days there at least. Um, you know, at Yellowstone, you've got the geothermal wonders, the wildlife, the mountains, whatever. You know, Acadia, the views, the coast, the, the forest, and on and on and on. You know, at Scott's Bluff, you can visit it in, in half a day, you know, if you're in a rush or a full day. And so... Well, you know, Kurt, part of that issue might also have to do with lodging because the big parks they've got you know lodging and campgrounds or they're near a place that has lodging some of these places i've been to like john day fossil beds national monument mm, if you want consistent modern lodging you're going to have to drive about an hour to an hour and a half either side of of the units in order to stay somewhere because there's no there's not even any campgrounds in John Day Fossil Beds. You have to camp outside of the monument at these BLM and these fish service, uh, National <laughs> Fish Service, you know, uh, fish and wildlife uh, campgrounds, if there are any around the units. True, true. But that goes back to um, one of the points I want to make is that it might not be your final destination, but you can string a number of these places together to make a road trip out of it. I mean, I went to, um, you know, Kansas and Nebraska, and, you know, I, I went from um, Scotts Bluff National Monument to, to eastern Nebraska to Homestead National Historical Park of America, and then down to Tallgrass Prairie and, and over to Fort Larned. Yeah, there's lots of driving in between those, but you can piece together smaller trips like in New Mexico, Valles Caldera National Preserve, Bandelier National Monument and Pecos National Historical Park are all within about a half hour of each other. And actually, Bandelier and Valles Caldera border one another. So, you know, if you look across the system and if you have a map of the national park system or if you read The Traveler um, frequently, we've pointed out some road trips. Like uh, another great one is Flagstaff. Use Flagstaff as a base camp and you can visit Walnut Canyon National Monument, Sunset Volcano National Monument, Wupatki National Monument, and Montezuma Castle National Monument in a week. 
or you know, even more depending on what your interests are in, in ancestral Puebloans and their societies or volcanics and whatnot. And you know, I'm sure um, you know, looking at um, John Day fossil beds on my map, I mean, you could piece together a trip with John Day and Crater Lake and Oregon Caves National Monument and Preserve. And you, know, you may not need that lodging at, at John Day fossil beds, you might not find it there, but certainly you could find it at, at Crater Lakes or at, at Oregon Caves. So I think with a little creativity, there's some wonderful options out there to visit these overlooked gems of the park system. Kim, you you got a you got a bunch in your backyard, Kim, in Washington D.C. Yeah, I was just going to say that, and sort of on a similar kind of bend of thinking about planning a trip is that I think people often think, oh, I've got to either do a big natural park trip, like make a big plan to go to Yellowstone, or I'm going to go do a city trip. We're going to go to Chicago. We're going to go to New York or go to D.C. and do all the tourist stuff there. But what I think what sometimes gets overlooked is that all these cities that have all kinds of other fun culture and amenities often have a lot of national park sites. There's a ton in um, New York City. And of course, right here where I live in the DC area, there's tons of national park units right here. And of course, most people understand that the main monuments that we think of when we think about the National Mall are all park service properties, but there are many others that are lesser known, like the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site is here, Frederick Douglass um, Douglas's home. Another string of national park sites that I like to share with people when they come here are the, the circle forts, the Civil War forts that ring the city. They were built right at the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War in 1861 in uh, Maryland, D.C. and Virginia, and they basically ring the capital city, and a lot of them have some remnants that are still visible and definitely certainly have you know, historical signage and, you know, cannons and things that have been put there to kind of evoke how they looked. And they're all national park sites. So it's like you can go there, you can go to D.C. and hit all the major tourist sites of the Smithsonian and go to the National Mall and go see the White House and all that. But if you depending on your interests, there's lots of cool national parks, you know, right in the area that are very, very interesting. And what's also interesting about the D.C. area is that we have some other little sort of pocket parks or they're not really that small, but they're small compared to the big national parks, the brand name parks that are also National Park Service properties. One is called Prince William Forest Park, right. which is just south of Washington, D.C. It is a wonderful hiking and camping destination that we love to go to. So say you've come to D.C., you've come because you want to you know, bring your kids and have the you know traditional D.C. history experience. But if you're longing for some good hiking because that's something you like to do on you know your summer vacation there are other park units not that far away that might offer that even in a busy you know urbanized place like dc so again like you said it might just take a little map reading and kind of connecting some interesting dots but it can be done and and get to see like you know cool park service sites you know there are so many in that dc virginia area i mean uh, what, Shenandoah National Park's an hour, hour and a half from D.C., Kim? Yeah, the northern part of Shenandoah is about an hour and a half. So, you know, yeah. Shenandoah is a hundred mile long park. So parts of it are about more like two and a half hours or almost three hours to get to from D.C. And Shenandoah is a little bit more of a brand name park. Sure, sure. But again, like I think when people think about, you know, Appalachian Mountains, they think about the Great Smoky Mountains. So someone might be thinking, oh, I want to go have a great mountain vacation. But Great Smoky Mountains is like, you know, one of the most visited national parks in the country. And it's beautiful and one of my absolute favorite places. But 
you could think about a Shenandoah as a possible alternative. If it feels like Great Smokies is too crowded or too busy, you know, you it wouldn't be quite as crowded and busy in, in Shenandoah with very, very similar kind of landscapes. So, you know, yeah. alternatives do exist. Yeah. And the point I was trying to make was that somebody in your family might want to see that big national park, natural outdoors park, as opposed to spending all the time at those pocket parks or whatnot. But there are so many alternatives that I think you can keep everybody in your family happy with a trip to the Virginia area. I mean, you've got Shenandoah, you've got the, the D.C. parks, you've got Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park or Battlefield Park, Assateague Island's not too far away. And then somebody mentioned something the other day about Chesapeake Bay um, and how, how there's an effort to turn that into a national recreation area, but you also have the Captain John Smith Trail. So, you know, if you just spend a little time taking a look at maps of the national park system, the, the options just are incredible. Yeah, they really are. I mean, my family and I took a big road trip from Virginia to Yellowstone in 2014. So it's so quite some time ago now. And we'd really carefully plotted our park stops on the way out. And they hit kind of the usual suspects that we had never seen. Like we we went to Mount Rushmore and Badlands and Devil's Tower and then made it to Yellowstone. And we had sort of always planned that the trip out to Yellowstone would be full of all these amazing well-known places. And we hadn't thought about the trip back. To us, the road trip back was just going to be the fast slog, get back to Virginia as quickly as possible on the interstate. But what we found was we still were able to hit a couple great national park sites, including like the Gateway Arch, which is very well known, but recently named, you know, turned into a national park. And then one place that we was really interesting that was off the beaten path was um, the Wright Brothers Aviation Site in Dayton, Ohio, another national historic site in Dayton. And I know people aren't going to be, you know, always having Dayton, Ohio on their list, nothing against the good people of Dayton, but you know, it's not like, Yosemite or Yellowstone. And yet it was a really cool little gem for us. My son was really into airplanes at the time and it was just a fun trip and yet one more little cool national park site that, you know, we hadn't really known about until we were looking at that map and thinking, how can we make some fun stops on the way home, you know, for a long road trip? Yeah. Yeah. This is Kurt Repencheck. We're talking today with uh, Kim O'Connell, a contributing editor at the National Parks Traveler, and Rebecca Latson, our contributing photographer. We're talking about overlooked jewels of the national park system. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. An attitude of gratitude can improve the way you manage your money. Enroll in Credit Score for free with Interior Federal Credit Union's digital banking and get started. Staying on top of your credit has never been easier. Join today to experience the benefits for yourself. Membership is required. Interior Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. 
Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at EvergladesFoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. All right, we're back with Becky Latson and Kim O'Connell talking about um, incredible places in the park system that you might not know about and you definitely should know about. And, you know, I mentioned road trips and my recent swing through northern New Mexico, um, unfortunately, was a working trip. And I say that, unfortunately, because I'd never been to Valles Caldera National Preserve. I'd never been to Bandelier nor Pecos National Historical Park. And so we we were on a, a, a four-day mission, and that's driving down, you know, I think it took us 10 hours driving each way down to northern New Mexico and the parks and driving back. And so we had three days to visit those three parks. And in hindsight, I could have spent three days at each of those parks. I mean, Vias Caldera is 89,000 acres of basically northern New Mexico wilderness. I mean, there was a volcanic explosion there back oh, 1.25 million years ago that created this huge caldera, and it's a mix of, uh, well, the volcano there is not extinct. It's just dormant. There are some fumaroles in parts of the park, but there's this huge, wide-open grassy area, hundreds of acres, that I understand fills up with elk at times. And then there's, um, you know, this historic cabin district when the area was uh, a working working ranch and the, and the human history there. I mean, obviously you can go back to paleo Indians 10,000 years ago, more recently going back to the 1500s, uh, you had the Spanish coming up and, and driving the sheep herds and whatnot. And then you had, um, a 19th century, early 20th century, um, cattle ranch operation there. And you, so you've got these historic cabins, just fascinating. Bandelier national monument. Um, we were down there working on a story about beavers and how beavers are being, return to the park to help restore the ecosystem there. And while I was there, I just happened to find out that the the structures, the buildings at the, the Park Visitor Center on the floor of the canyon were built by the CCC crews back in the 1930s and represent the largest collection of CCC structures anywhere in the park system. And then you've got the cavates from when the ancestral Puebloans lived there, you know, carved into this volcanic tuff. So much interesting material, but unfortunately we had to move on to Pecos National Historical Park. And, you know, Pecos, people might think, well, it's, it's all about ancestral Puebloans, and that's a, a key focal point. And the, the Spanish uh, explorers back again in the 1600s and, and how they subjugated the, the native populations to their will and, and used them as slave labor, so to speak. But you've got that history, you've got the Santa Fe Trail history, you've got um, Civil War history in Glorieta Pass National, well, it's part of Pecos. And so the point I'm getting to is, if you want to go on one of these road trips, make sure you do your research before you go, because there's so much that you will uncover when you get there that you will wish you planned your trip differently. And and Becky, you can probably um, 
say the same thing about your travels. Absolutely. I went to uh, Whiskeytown National Recreation Area on assignment for the traveler, actually. And I only spent a day and a half there, but I could easily have spent two to three days because there's so much to that one area, even though 97% of it was devastated by the 2018 car fire. Um, I went to Great Basin National Park. These are all places I've never been before. I could have spent an extra day or two there. Uh, the infrastructure within Great Basin is not that large, but the park itself, I could have spent, I should have gone. I mean, I look back, woulda, coulda, shoulda. There are places that I would have liked to have gone. There are roads, uh, dirt roads that I would have liked to have taken in that park to get to other places, including other bristle groves. And yeah, absolutely. All these places I would have liked to have spent more time at, but I'd never been there. And when you go for the first time to someplace and you don't know what to expect, it, it's often hard to figure out what exactly you want to do until you get there and you find out what it's like. No, absolutely. And, and I hate to admit it, but, um, from where I'm sitting, um, Great Basin is only about five hours drive. And in the 30 years almost that I've lived here, I've never been to Great Basin. And I really, really um, feel horrible about that because um, I think it's got some great backpacking um, landscapes. It's got, like you mentioned, the Bristlecone Pine Forest, which are amazing in their own right. It's got Lehman Caves, which um, just had an anniversary. I can't remember if it was the 75th or 100th anniversary of them. Just, just amazing. And, you know, the stories you came back from um, John Day fossil beds and the, the landscape there that you saw, just incredible. Oh, Oregon, Central Oregon, which is where these three units in this national monument are located, is just incredible. The, the scenery is stunning. The geology is amazing. And that's a really cool place. Again, if you've got the time for it, you can see all the units because there are three of them. And they're all about an hour's drive apart from each other. You can see all the three units in one day, but you don't really get a flavor for them unless you spend a little bit more than like, you know, 30 minutes to an hour each. Yeah, that's why I want to get a camper and, and just be able to have a self-contained unit that I can just park it there and spend the night and start new the next morning. Um, you know, another great road trip is in, in Northern California, Years ago, some years ago, my youngest son, Sean, and I went to Lassen Volcanic National Park, which is... I it, love it, that it, park. It used to be an undiscovered jewel, but I think it's been uh, discovered, and I know you talked to the superintendent about that, Becky. Yeah, and I did. I mentioned something about it being an undiscovered gym, and he says, well, it's been discovered. It's a discovered <laughs> gym now. But I... I actually, next year, am planning on going back. I spent three days there, and it just wasn't enough time. And I wasn't in that great a shape. So I want to go back. I want to redo one of the hikes because now there, there's more to this hike that I want to photograph. And I also want to try and uh, accomplish hiking the Lassen Peak Trail as well. But it, it is, it's a really cool park. It's not as large as Nash, as Mount Rainier National Park or Yosemite or Yellowstone, but it is such a cool park. And that, despite the fact that about 69% of that park was devastated by the recent 2021 Dixie Fire. Yeah, yeah. And, and getting back to, to road trips, you can either start at Crater Lake National Park and go south towards Lassen and and hit Lava Beds National Monument on the way, or you can start at Lassen and go north along the Volcanic Legacy Highway, which, you know, again, another great road trip. And, and yeah, you're kind of bookended by, by two national parks, quote unquote, but um, 
Lassen hasn't drawn the crowds just yet as some of the other ones. And Lava Beds National Monument is a fascinating place. Um, Kim, you know, you recently um, have been working on a story about Fort Raleigh on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And I think when people hear Outer Banks of North Carolina, they only think about Cape Hatteras National Seashore. And there's two other gems in the backyard, aren't there? Yeah, well, so there's there's Fort Raleigh and there's the Wright Brothers Memorial site at, at the Outer Banks. Um, you know, it's funny because I have gone to the Outer Banks since I was a little girl. There are probably some people who go to the Outer Banks and don't even really think about Cape Hatteras National Seashore. They think about just going to Nags Head and going out for seafood. And maybe they don't go all the way far south to Hatteras Island and see the beautiful Hatteras Lighthouse. I hope they do. That's the, the biggest symbol there. But certainly that's the main national park there that people would know about. But Fort Raleigh is on the you know northern tip of Roanoke Island, which is part of that series of barrier islands. But it's interior. It's, it's protected by the outer barrier island that Nags Head and Kitty Hawk, Kill Devil Hills are on. And so it's got a little bit different flavor. It's more wooded. It's a more residential um, island. You know, there are, you know, year-round residents there. So the whole island has a different flavor. And so tucked away is this beautiful historic site. It's tucked in this like pine forest. And that's, of course, where the Lost Colony um, um, attempted to settle in the 1580s, the famous Sir Walter Raleigh uh, expeditions. Uh, there were three different uh, expeditions in a row. The first couple were sort of, so, you know, supply and investigation expeditions. But the last expedition sent men, women, and children to create a settlement in the so-called New World back then on Roanoke Island. And then of course, um, this group was left there. And they're sort of, you know, when when people came back a couple of years later, the colony had disappeared. And this is the famous lost colony mystery that has endured for hundreds of years. And so what is really neat about Fort Raleigh is that there's ongoing excavation and archaeology happening there. So not only is it this really interesting site, um, it's a beautiful site on this island, but um, there's a great historical mystery there that people can go and learn about. And there's actually ongoing um, excavating and archaeology happening. So you can actually watch these scientists at work trying to discover clues, not just to the lost colony, but to what they did there. And one of the things that excavations uncovered were um, evidence of a workshop and a metallurgy shop, like some scientific, you know, work about like, you know, metal ores and things that were on site there as, they, as people were trying to discover what materials were there to help forge a new society. So that's some interesting archaeology that's happening on that site that I've been writing about. It's just kind of an overlooked gem. And it's a really beautiful place. What's also neat there is that there's a long running uh, play, outdoor play called The Lost Colony that's run there right by Fort Raleigh. And so you can kind of have a multi-layered experience as a visitor there. You can go to the National Park site, you can go see the outdoor play, you can watch these you know, archeologists at work, and then you can go to the beach the next day. So, <laughs> and then um, what's also interesting is that in recent years, the park has been increasingly interpreting um, the evidence of the Freedmen's Colony that existed there um, during and after the Civil War. You mentioned the Civil War earlier and also talking about these parks that have multiple layers of history there. You know, Fort Raleigh was meant to interpret this expedition from the 1500s, but as they learn more things about the area, they realize, oh, there was this Freedmen's Colony and they've found evidence of that. 
And so that's a big part of the park's interpretation now too. So it's kind of cool to go to one place and learn about different, you know, eras of history in one place. And so, you know, that piece will be going up on the Traveler pretty soon. And I hope people find it interesting. Well, I'm, I'm sure um, they're all wondering, Kim, what happened to the lost colony? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, right. There's lots of different theories and I'll mention a few of them in the piece, but you know, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be pretty rich right now, I think. So. Um, <laughs> all right. All right. Um, so Becky, what, what plans um, you, one place you didn't mention that you've been to that, uh, that fascinates me is the ice age trail. Oh yeah. You know, there's more than just, uh, well included as park units are these, uh, National Historic and uh, Trails and National Geologic Trail. And so I spent uh, last year and this year uh, driving, speaking of road trip, along a couple of them. One was the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail. And then the other was the Ice Age Floods National Geologic Trail. And, and these trails, yeah, it is. These <laughs> And these trails are not, you know, like a hiking trail that you go on, but really they're routes taken by historical figures or historical events. So for instance, the Ice Age Floods NGT to shorten it up, um, that is the route taken by uh, about 18,000 to 15,000 years ago by these colossal floodwaters that uh, broke through an ice dam. Used to be Glacial Lake Missoula, it was like 2,000 feet deep and 500 to 600 cubic miles. And these waters uh, roared through parts of Montana and Idaho and Washington and Oregon and emptied out into the Pacific Ocean. So I decided to just take some day trips rather than a long trip following the route. And the interesting thing about these places is that they're a part of the national trail system, but or, or the National Geologic Trail, but they're like state parks and their view areas and their museums. So that are not necessarily under the purview of the National Park Service in general, but they're a part of this national route taken by these events or this figure. So I visited and wrote about uh, my trip through to Frenchman Cooley, which is just off of a major interstate in eastern Washington, and uh, to Dry Falls. All of these places are in eastern Washington. Uh, mm -hmm. If you've ever heard of the channeled scablands, that's the landscape that was created from these tremendous waters gouging and eroding out the land to create these big mile-wide, hundreds of feet tall, or hundreds of feet deep ravines called coulees, and they uh, these waters eroded and uncovered interesting geologic features that we might not have been able to see otherwise. So I spent uh, several different days just you know driving along the trail, the Ice Age NGT, and then I also uh, wanted to learn a little history too, which is why I decided to start driving and stopping at places along the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail. Uh, between 1803 and 1806, uh, then President Thomas Jefferson uh, asked Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to gather together a group of men, which they ultimately named the Corps of Discovery. And they traveled over 16 states and about 4,900 miles in their 
quest for the fabled inside passage, which they were hoping to find that would make it easy for them to transfer goods from like St. Louis out to the Pacific Ocean. They didn't find the inside passage, but they did discover a lot of things and met a lot of uh, different Native American tribes along the way. And they cataloged everything that they saw and everything that they did. So again, this is a, a route that has a lot of state parks. I visited uh, the things in my neck of the woods, which is in Washington state, um, a lot of state parks and view areas and there's the Lewis and Clark National Historical Park, which is different from the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail. You have to know the difference between <laughs> historic and historical. <laughs> but um, these are great road trips that you can make any time of the year. And, you know, you can spend a day or two at each or you can see all sorts of things in a day. So it's not just a national historic historical parks and national monuments and national parks, but there are other aspects to the national park system that you can investigate. So that's what I did this year and last year. Yeah. And that Lewis and Clark trail stretches all the way to, I believe, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, yes. you know, um, on your trips across the country, you can stop at different aspects of the Lewis and Clark, Clark trail and pick up on, on some really deep American history. We're talking today with uh, Kim O'Connell, a contributing editor at the National Parks Traveler, and Rebecca Latson, our contributing photographer. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Kim, what are your thoughts about 2023? I know, you know, one thing we've really worked on this year at The Traveler is, is visiting these overlooked 
gems or jewels and, and bringing their stories to our readers and listeners. Um, and hopefully we're going to continue that in 2023. I'm just kind of curious um, if there's any uh, particular spots you'd like to visit next year. Oh, wow. Next year. I, you know, I haven't thought really deeply about that yet, um, but I'm intrigued by um, what Becky was saying about Lewis and Clark. And in fact, my dad was a big Lewis and Clark fan as a history buff, and he followed some of that trail. Um, you know, he's been gone for a while now, but he actually did it by different modalities. Like he would, of course, drive parts of the route and try to follow their footsteps. And he hiked, but he also rode a horse like through the Bitterroot Mountains at some point wow. or something. So he did that. And so um, while you were talking, it was making me think about national heritage areas, um, which are not really units of the national park system, but they were like what you were describing. They're areas that are designated and fall under the offices of the park service because they combine related places, you know, both public and private, state, local, and national parks. And so there are also interesting things that I think visitors can um, investigate. I think there's something like 55 national heritage areas now in many different states. Um, I've spent some time in the Blue Ridge National Heritage Area, which includes the Great Smoky Mountains. And there is a um, uh, National Heritage Area, I believe, um, in the Shenandoah Valley and some other places I've been that are pretty interesting. So maybe I'll do more of those, Kurt. Um, I haven't quite thought through like what national parks I'm going to go to um, next year. Um, you know, there's definitely lots out there that I haven't seen. So There, there really are. And, um, you know, one, one trip that I kind of, you know, it's uh, one of those things you dream about and you don't know if you ever do and it is going to the Great Lakes and, and hitting all the national lake shores. Of course, Indiana Dunes National Lake Shore is now Indiana Dunes Lake, and that would be one. Indiana yeah, Dunes National Park, yeah. Yeah, that would be one in, incredible um, um, road trip. Um, another one, Cumberland Island National Seashore. It just intrigues me. Um, I've been writing a lot about it and, and some of the visitor use management plans that the Park Service is working on down there. But just the the maritime forests, the, um, the the seashore, the beaches there, it just sounds like a, a magical place. Um, and you can go on and on. I mean, um, Voyagers National Park in, in Minnesota, that's way out there. I mean, you don't happen upon that by accident. You you go there because you want to go there. But if you do go to Voyagers, you know, not too far away is Grand Portage National Monument. And if you go to Grand Portage, well, heck, you might as well catch a boat, go over to Isle Royal national park um, yeah actually those those are on my bucket list like i was going to say isle royale like that i love its remoteness um and aren't there wolves on isle royale national park there are I thought wolves there. a pack of wolves yeah so I, I think that would be really cool i have road trip through several of the lake shores around the great lakes and so i can definitely um support that idea because i think they are they are really stunning some of the places like sleeping bear dunes with those huge dunes, uh, pictured rocks, of course, with its sort of like carved out rock cliffs along uh, Lake Superior. They're just really, truly amazing places. They're, they really are across the national park system, across the, the United States. And and why so many people just keep going back to the same ones? I mean, I can understand Yellowstone, once you want to have that on your bucket list, okay? Grand Canyon, sure. Yosemite, sure. There are so many other places that, that don't get the crowds, that offer you new experiences and education and history and culture and fewer crowds. I mean, I went to Tallgrass Prairie. I had it to myself. A ranger and I kind of walked across the landscape there, and um, there were no crowds. I didn't have to elbow anybody away for, for photographs or whatnot. And it was just 
unfortunately, I was there in June. And I say unfortunately because the, the tall grass prairie there was only about knee high. And uh, Lynn, Lynn Riddick, um, our, our podcast expert, was there um, in late August, I believe. And, you know, she was surrounded by, you know, six and seven foot tall prairie grasses. And that just sounds like such an incredible experience um, when you come to realize that once upon a time, I think 170 or 175 million acres of North America had tall grass prairie. And now we've got just single percentage left. And and to be able to go to places like uh, tall grass prairie or Homestead National Historical Park has um, some tall grass prairie, and, and see that. I mean, it, it's you know, it's as fascinating as as the geothermal in Yellowstone. Um, some people might disagree, but when you start thinking about it, and you look at the biodiversity that these people hold, or these these places hold, and the stories that they hold, um, I never get tired of visiting new units in the national park system. You know what? And you, when you mentioned the tall grass prairie, I've seen some of that too. Like what I remember is how sweet the prairie grasses smelled. And sometimes when I think about um, going to these busy national parks, you, you know, you're just, you're crowded with people, you hear noise, you hear cars and buses and it's busy. And I, I think, you know, one thing we like to talk about is the value of, you know, nat- natural sounds, natural silence and different sensory experiences in the parks. And so I re- remember loving prairie areas because, um, the, the grass smells so sweet and wonderful. You're not smelling, you know, car fumes of the line of cars in front of you to get into the park. And then I remember going to um, one of those um, national parks down in the Southwest that you mentioned, I think it was Wapaki National Monument or Sunset Crater. I was in one of those many years ago and it was the first time I'd never, I'd heard natural silence where I couldn't hear a thing. Hmm. Can you imagine like how wonderful that is for all of us in our busy lives to go to a national park site and not hear something. So also going to some of these different parks gives you a chance to experience different sensory experiences that you can't have when you're, you know, shoulder to shoulder and elbow to elbow with, you know, hundreds of other people and other cars. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I forgot to mention just the other day on the traveler, we had a feature on another overlooked gem of the park system, big South fork national river and recreation area. And, you know, for years I've been, you know, writing little stories about it, you know, from press releases that they sent. And I always figured that the the focal point of this park was the river that runs through it. It's a big kayaking stream and there's some canoeing areas you can do, whitewater canoeing. And we had this wonderful piece about rock arches there. And, you know, you hear Arches National Park in Utah and the, the, the greatest collection of arches in the world. And here's this small overlooked gem back in Kentucky and Tennessee, it straddles a border that apparently has hundreds of natural arches itself. And, you know, of course, they're in a, a dense deciduous forest. And so, you know, I guess the, we're coming into the perfect season to go visit in the wintertime when the, the leaves are off the tree and they're easier to spot. But who knew, you know? <laughs> well, ladies, it's been great talking with you today about these overlooked gems. And I, and I guess one big takeaway that, that listeners should should come away with is visit these places now before their names change into national parks and everybody discovers a new national park and that's where the crowds are going to go. Right. (laughs) Kim, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. It's always fun to talk to you both and hear about your adventures and get me excited about my own future adventures. So thank you. It never, never fails to uh, provide enough paper to, to come up with parks to visit. And, um, to you ladies and to all our listeners, I hope you have a, a wonderful and peaceful Thanksgiving and um, 
we'll keep churning out these stories and, and hope you all find them interesting. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it and found some inspiration for future national park travels. Just because a park isn't tagged as a quote-unquote national park doesn't mean it's not worth visiting. Next week, we'll wrap up the Thanksgiving holiday weekend with a discussion about dehydrating your own meals for backpacking and paddling trips. And one of the recipes is how to make a dehydrated pumpkin pie. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.